Well, I mentioned to you we are in Nehemiah chapter 2. We didn't actually get a chance to finish the book, uh, the chapter of Nehemiah chapter 2. So today we're going to begin by doing that and then we'll move into chapter 3 as well. Uh, you may recall that the last time we were together, we took notice that Nehemiah has arrived in the city of Jerusalem. That God had, in chapter 1, that God had been working on his heart, prepping his heart, putting a burden there for him. Uh, to do this work in Jerusalem, and he'd begun praying about that, that he prayed about it for uh, four months, we learned, uh, that the Lord would just direct him. And then one day the Lord did, and the door was open, and the king said, what's up? What do you need? And he just said, all right, Lord, if this is you, and he went forward, he stepped through the door, he took courage, and he began to share with the king what was on his heart, and the king said, that sounds great, go for it, that the king responded favorably. It was such an answer of prayer. And he said, what else? Do you need people to go with you? you need a, an armed military guard? Do you need access to some of the materials? And, and Nehemiah was just like, the Lord is in this. This is fantastic. And so he makes his way back to Jerusalem. And as we saw at the start of chapter 2, he gets there after this long journey to get there, and he begins by doing nothing. That he just kind of comes into the city, and he does nothing, and he waits. We learn that he waits about three days. No doubt, praying during that time, trying to figure out some things. Lord, how do you want me to proceed? Uh, and then the Lord began to put on his heart, and one night in the middle of the night, he couldn't sleep, as the Lord so often does with many of us. And he teaches us in the night season, as the Scripture says. And he began to minister to the heart of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah had to get up out of bed. And he gets up out of bed, he finds a couple of guys to go with him, and he begins to survey the city of Jerusalem, jotting down little notes, I suspect, to himself, praying the entire way, and coming up with a plan. All right, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to call a meeting of the officials. We, we have that recorded for us in the chapter as well. We don't know when, but a day later, a couple days later, maybe the next morning, and he calls them together and he, he gives them that speech. I compared it to the coach in the locker room who says, this is what we're going to do, and it's going to be awesome, and you guys are awesome, and let's go for it. Reminds me of that Pinocchio commercial. Have you seen that? I think it's a Geico commercial. And you have potential, and you have potential, whatever. And he gives them this thing, and we're going to do it, and it's going to be great. And so they go and they get to work. And we saw that, and we're going to pick up right where we left off now. It's verse 19. It says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us, and they despised us. And they said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now, last week when we were together, I introduced to you the idea that there was going to be series of opposition that was going to come against Nehemiah and against the Jewish people. And I pointed out that two of the men that would be opposing him again and again in the book are Sanballat and Tobiah. So we saw their names in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. Here now in verse 19, we have mention again of Sanballat and Tobiah, but we also have mention of a, a fellow by the name of Geshem the Arab. I told you last week, Sanballat and Tobiah are mentioned six times in the book. Geshem is mentioned three times in the book. And every time these guys are mentioned, they're opposing Nehemiah. They're opposing the work of God that is, that, uh, is trying to be accomplished through Nehemiah. They, just, they were opposed to God and his work and, and his people. Now, in verse 10, that opposition, all we have recorded for us is that these men expressed their displeasure that Nehemiah came to the city and he was looking out for the Jews. It says that they, expre they expressed their displeasure. We don't know how they expressed that. We don't know if they got all loud and, and started to complain or to raise a stink. 
Or it could have simply been something like on their face, they could tell. You know, they just gave that look like, I don't like you. I don't like what you're trying to do or accomplish. And whatever it was, Nehemiah took notice of it. And he knew that these guys were displeased that he had come into their particular thing, uh, into the city of Jerusalem to do this particular work. So whatever the case may be, he was able to read their displeasure. But here now, in verse 19, it's not just something on their face, but their displeasure becomes very evident, clearly evident. And we see by their actions that they're leaving no doubt, we don't like you. We don't want you here. We don't want you accomplishing what you're trying to accomplish. So look in verse 19. Here's where they leave no doubt. It says, When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab, when they heard of it, they jeered at us, and they despised us. And then it goes on from there, and it speaks of some other things. Now, I mentioned a number of times in our study already of Nehemiah that one of the things we're going to do is we're going to pull back from sort of the study of the day, and I'm going to draw your attention to different principles of leadership that we see Nehemiah exemplifying. Well, similarly, we're also going to see throughout the book, and I'll pull back from time to time, time to time to point out different means of opposition that come against Nehemiah and the way that he responds to it. And the reason why I want to draw our attention to the different methods or means of opposition that come against them is because opposition is going to come against us. And the enemy that we have that is against us, ultimately the devil, is not that creative. And that which he done many years before, he's going to do again. So we read in the book of Ecclesiastes where it's so Solomon is speaking, it says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And so that the means and the methods of the enemy that he used 2,500 years ago, he's likely going to give it a shot again, maybe changing a little bit of the specifics, but he'll come against us and seek to oppose us in pretty much the same means. So if we can observe the methods, then we can anticipate the methods. And if we can anticipate the way the enemy is going to come against us, attack us, then we can ready ourselves and prepare ourselves. So that's the first reason. And then the second reason is this, we can learn from Nehemiah's response. How did he respond to the uh, attack and the opposition that came against him? And good, valuable lessons that we can apply in our lives as well. So that's what we're going to try to do. So what have been the means of the enemy? Well, in the book so far, we saw first they simply express their displeasure. And again, perhaps it's a facial expression. Maybe it's a big sigh. <sighs> One of those. And you, you, you like that when your kids do that, don't you? Um, to you, um, those of you that have teenagers. Maybe it's a loud sigh, or maybe it's something more prominent, something they did, some campaign they, they started. We don't know how they expressed their, quote, great displeasure, but oftentimes the first means of opposition that we observe is folks just express their displeasure. We don't like you, and we don't like what you're trying to do. So have you been there? Teachers, I'm sure, those of you that are school teachers, you've been there. Uh, certainly, you've been there. Maybe it's a word coming against you, or maybe it's just a look. Now, some, for most of us, that's pretty discouraging. I'll be honest, there's some of us here, we, we could care less. You know, I don't care, I don't like you either. You know, you don't like me, I don't like you, this is what we're doing, uh, or whatever. But for most of us, those of us that have a heart, you know, those sorts of things, they kind of hurt a little bit. And that look, or that sigh, or that word can be somewhat paralyzing where we just kind of stop everything. And we're like, well, I'm not moving forward then, because obviously people don't like it. It's that one guy who's a crank, no offense to my friend here, but it's that one guy. But in our minds, nobody likes this, so I'm stopping, I'm pulling back. All right, so that's the first thing is the look. And we need to be careful 
to not let that expression of displeasure paralyze us or stop us. Because the reality is this, not everyone is going to agree with the calling that God has given us. And some are going to look at us and they're going to think, you know, you're somewhat arrogant. Who do you think you are that you can accomplish the work of God? That's arrogant of you. They express their displeasure. Some are going to think things like, you know, you're too young to have such grand ideas, or you're too naive, or you're too inexperienced, or something like that. And honestly, some, they're not really opposed to you. They like you, but they're opposed to the work you want to do. They're ultimately opposed to God. And so they rise up against us. They express their displeasure. And the first lesson that we learn from Nehemiah is to not let other folks' displeasure dissuade us, that we need to keep on. Now, can you take their displeasure into consideration? So they might say, you're too young for that. Can you bring that into consideration and think, well, maybe I am too young for that? Or maybe I am too inexperienced for that? I think you should, actually. I think it's a learning lesson. You, you kind of go through, you process, and say, Lord, should I be doing this? Should I be going forward with this? But after you've done that, and the Lord has made it clear, I want you to continue to move forward, then you need to move forward regardless of how people might think about it or if they express their displeasure. You need to stay focused on the thing that God has called you to do. And if you're convinced that God is directing you in that manner, then you can't allow the displeasure of others to dissuade you from what God has called you to do. So that's the first lesson. Now, Nehemiah does, does that. He demonstrates that. He refuses to allow himself to be discouraged simply because some of the other folks don't appreciate his arrival there in the city. So what does the enemy do? Well, he doesn't just give up and say, well, I gave it my best shot. I, I made a mean face or whatever. He goes back to the drawing board and he comes back at him again. Now you see here in the passage, the next form of opposition is what we read today. He turns to mocking and to ridicule. So again, look at verse 19 where it says, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they heard of it, and they jeered us and they despised us. Now to jeer at someone is to mock or to deride or to ridicule. I do like the way the King James says it because it seems to really define it. It's laughing a person to scorn. And so the idea of being jeered at or mocked or ridiculed is where folks are poking fun at you to the point of where a crowd is gathering around. Now you're the guy in the middle and everyone seems to be laughing at you. Well, that's what these guys are doing. They're jeering at Nehemiah and the others. Now the word despise means to hold in contempt or to consider something as worthless. And that's oftentimes what happens. When you're the guy standing in the middle of the circle and everyone is laughing at you and everyone is mocking you and belittling you, you come away feeling oftentimes as worthless. And so they are uh, jeering at them. They are despising them. So step one, a disapproving look. Step two, to begin to mock or to ridicule or to poke fun at, uh, to get, and to gain a crowd in doing so. Now the opposition is escalating. The opposition is increasing. And as the crowd is accumulating, the stakes now seem to really be getting bigger and bigger. Because now you're the guy in the middle that is beginning to think, you know, is this really worth it? Do I really want to go through all of this just to accomplish this thing? And you begin to have doubts. Do you really want to go through with all of this? Because I don't know any of us that like to be mocked. Some of us like to mock others, but I don't know any of us that like to be mocked. And none of us like to be made to look stupid or to be made to look foolish. And we don't enjoy being in the midst of a crowd when we're the butt of the jokes. And the enemy knows that. And so very early on in the opposition process, 
the enemy will unleash a barrage of opposition in the form of mocking and insults, jeering, all designed to make us feel small, to make us feel foolish, uh, feel foolish, and ultimately to give up. We can't allow it. Because, again, that's been the, the method of the opposition for thousands of years. And so we can't let that discourage us or, if you will, knock us off of the path that the Lord has directed us to be on. But we need to keep our eyes on Him and accomplish that which He has laid on our heart to accomplish. Now let me make a quick insertion here. Because you may not see yourself as the enemy of your brother or the enemy of your spouse or the enemy of your kid or your co-workers and all that, but you could be used by the enemy. And, you know, we live in a society, we like to poke fun at one another and joke with one another. We were at some event the other day and, and someone made fun of me. And it was funny. And I laughed. I thought it was really good. And I didn't mind it at all. And so I'm not saying this in some, like, hidden way, like, don't do that anymore to me. I, I thought it was funny. I would have said it if, if I thought of it. Um, but anyhow, we, we sort of live in a day where we do poke fun at people. And your innocent joke, just to get that quick laugh, the result may be more harmful to the person than you can imagine. So we just need to be careful with our use of humor, particularly when the joke is on someone else. My suggestion, if you feel you need to make a joke to sort of break the ice in the room, make it about yourself. Um, just be careful in that regard. Now, here's Nehemiah. People gave him unkind looks. Now they begin to mock him, to the, trying to discourage him. But Nehemiah, he continues on. And so what does that lead the opposition to do? Give up? Go away? No, they come back again. They're gonna get, they get three strikes at the very least, so they come up again, and they take another shot at it, and this time in the form of accusations. So look at verse 19 there, where it says, speaking of Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they jeered at us, they despised us. Notice what they say, though. It says, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, they don't come out and say that these men are rebelling, but they raise the question. And I see in there sort of a veiled threat. And the veiled threat is, hey, you keep this up, and we're going to have to go to the king and tell him what you're doing. You know, what are you, rebelling? So the disapproving look didn't work. The mocking didn't do the trick. And so the enemy takes it up a notch, and now he begins to accuse and to threaten. Stop doing what you're doing, or we're going to make things hard for you. And honestly, if, if we are honest here, if we've made it past the looks and we've made it past the jokes, now we get to where things are starting to get hard and tough, and, and many of us back out now. Say, you know, I'm not interested. Because for the most of us, we don't want problems. I just want a peaceful life. I want to go home, I want to watch a little TV, I want to hang out with my kids, have a nice dinner, and go to bed. That's what I want for my life. And that's what I'm looking for here. We don't want problems. We just want to go to our job or go to our place of business or attend our classes and then go home and everything is fine. We don't want trouble. And honestly, I understand that, and I agree with that. But sometimes, things need to be stirred up a little bit if we're going to accomplish that which the Lord has uniquely laid upon you or me to accomplish. And sometimes, the byproduct of our involvement in this issue is going to equate with a little bit of trouble in our lives. That's the method of the enemy, and it's been his method for 2,500 years, and even further back than that. And so like Nehemiah, we can't let that little bit of trouble deter us from our calling. So notice what Nehemiah does here in verse 20. He, rather than be deterred, he replies to them. He says, you know what? The God of heaven will make us prosper. Your looks aren't going to dissuade me. 
your jokes aren't going to knock me off of what I'm trying to accomplish, and these accusations and threats aren't going to stop me. The God of heaven is going to make us prosper. And, he, and we, his servants, we will arise and we will build. We're not going to be dissuaded. But you, you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, he sees the op- opposition, but he's determined not to allow it to work. And the reason why he's so committed to this is, as you see there, because it's God, he's the one that has called them to this, and he's the one that's been smoothing out the path and moving on people's hearts, and he's the one that's going to bring it to fruition. And so Nehemiah is going to keep his eyes on that God and not on all the problems that are rising up around him. Our job is simply to do what God is leading us to do. And that requires that we keep our eyes firmly fixed on God and not the opposition. Now, I'm reminded of an event in the New Testament. It's recorded for us in three different places. Matthew 14, Mark chapter 6, and also in John chapter 6. It's the story of Jesus appearing to the disciples walking on the water. Now, I can tell those of you that have been around the church for a while because that doesn't do anything for you. But for those that are somewhat new to the Bible, walking on the water is like, what? Yes, Jesus came walking on the water. Now, he's not on a puddle. He's out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It's about four miles out into the middle of this body of water, which probably the depth of that water was about 150 feet deep. So he's out in the middle of the ocean, if you will. And he comes walking to the disciples. Now, the disciples had gotten into the boat, and they're going to make their way to the other side. And as they get about halfway into the Sea of Galilee, a storm brews up. And now they're straining with all they got at the oars, and they're not going anywhere. And so hours, it seems, is going by, and they're just doing all they can not to have the current bring them back to where they came from. They're trying to fight it. And now Jesus comes walking out to them. Now, as you can imagine, the disciples, they didn't read these passages in Scripture. So they have have no idea what this is, who this is. So they're convinced that this is a ghost, as you probably would as well, some spirit or something out in the middle of the water. And so Peter, I have no idea why, um, but Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on, come on out on the water with you. And so he thinks it's Jesus, so he's going to put Jesus to the test. And he knows enough about Jesus that Jesus could do it if he wanted to. So he says, command me to come out. And so Jesus says, come on out. And Peter's like, oh no, <laughs> or whatever. And the disciples are like, yeah, buddy, get out there. you know, And they're pushing him or whatever. So Peter gets out on, uh, of the boat, And Peter now begins to walk on the water as well. So now Jesus and Peter are walking on the water. We can understand Jesus because he's fully God and fully man. The fully God part took over or something. But Peter is walking on the water, and he's doing pretty good. Jesus had commanded him, and he had obeyed Jesus' command, and he was accomplishing the work. Let me bring it back. Nehemiah was commanded. He had obeyed the command, and he was accomplishing the work. You see the connection I'm making here? But an interesting thing begins to occur in the passage. Because as Peter is out there on the water, suddenly his gaze, which was fixed on Jesus, begins to come down and he begins to look at, the scripture says, the wind and the waves, and then I think also himself. I'm a human being out here on the water. What am I doing? And the scripture says that he begins to sink. Now, the connection or the point that I want to make is, as long as Peter is keeping his eyes on Jesus, He's above the water, doing the impossible, accomplishing the work of God. But the moment he begins to look down at that opposition, he begins to sink. And so we read, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. The opposition and the uh, threatens, 
He responds to that opposition, and he begins to sink, unfortunately. So to use New Testament vernacular, Nehemiah is doing the opposite. And he keeps his eyes on Jesus, firmly fixed on what God has called him to do, and that God was the one who was going to accomplish it, and thus he's able to do what he needs to do. And that's good news. Now, you might hear that and you say, so if I said this question, who are you more like, Nehemiah or Peter in this story? Now, some of you say, well, I have my Nehemiah moments. Most of the time, I'm more like Peter, though. I begin to kind of look around. And so maybe you hear that and you think, you know what? I haven't done that. I haven't kept my eyes firmly on Jesus. I've looked down. I've looked at the opposition. I've looked at the wind. I looked at the waves. I looked at my own humanity and my own weaknesses. I allowed my eyes to fall downward. I've become fearful when the opposition has come against me. Well, if that describes you, then you need to keep looking at the passage because even Peter struggled with keeping his eyes on the Lord. And so when Peter began to sink, notice what he does here. He says, when he saw the wind, he saw the waves, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So Peter cries out to the Lord in his failure, and notice what the Lord does. The verse continues, it says, and Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. No stinging rebuke. What kind of a servant are you? How are you going to be the first pope if you continue to act this way? You know, <laughs> none of those things. No, and this is something we sometimes say as parents or leaders. We say, you know what? I'm going to let you sink a little bit so you feel how bad it is. And you're not going to want to be there anymore. And then you'll learn your lesson. Peter, Jesus doesn't say that to Peter as well. Jesus, rather, he reaches down and he pulls Peter out to safety. He, he rescues him. And I appreciate that so very much. Because, you know what, we're going to try to accomplish the work and we're going to have some good days, I'm sure. As a church, as a body of believers, as individuals, as families, we're going to have some good days. But often we're going to have bad days. And we're going to mess up and we're going to keep our eyes and they're going to fall down, keep them from the Lord. They're going to fall down on the things and we're going to start sinking. And we can cry out to the Lord and the Lord will pull us back. So if you have done that, get your eyes back on the Lord and allow the Lord to extend his hand to pull you back up on top of the water. Well, let's move on to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is one of those chapters that many of us skip in our daily quiet time. Or maybe not skip because we want to read through the whole Bible and check off that we've done so, uh, because someone somewhere told us that was important. But So maybe chapter 3 is a chapter we skim. Amen? Anybody? Come on, be honest. You've skimmed chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a list of names. All right, lots of names that you don't even know how to pronounce. I don't even know how to pronounce. I'm not even sure they're really names, to be honest with you. <laughs> Somebody just told me they are and put them in there, so I have to assume that they're accurate here. It's a list of names. We might kind of skim through it, think, well, not a lot that is important there. But we remind ourselves the Lord saw fit to take a chapter of his word, which lives on for eternity, and put these names in there. So I think we can take the time to consider some of these names here. This is an account of the work that was being accomplished under Nehemiah's leadership as he returns to the land of Jerusalem. And all they're doing is building a wall. And the Lord takes notice of it. You know, sometimes we think our work for the Lord is meaningless. We think nobody really takes notice of it, particularly when the work that we are doing is less than glamorous. It's not something that everyone's attention is drawn to. So some of us, we stuff bulletins. And we think, well, all I'm doing is stuffing bulletins. All I do is bounce babies up and down for an hour so their parents can have a break. And we think that's worthless work. Or all I do is set up chairs or take down chairs. Well, chapter 3 is a reminder to us that none of the work that we do for the Lord is in vain. 
but that the Lord sees it and the Lord takes notice of it. So we saw in chapter 2 that Nehemiah sort of gave this speech. I compared it to the locker room speech that the coach is going to share. And the people now, the officials, they hear it and they're fired up to get out to work. They, they put their hand to the work, it said, or strengthen their hand. Well, here now in chapter 3, it shows us the work that they did. Those who got busy, where they got busy, and how specifically they got busy. So we're going to take our time and look through this. We'll start with verse 1. I'm going to look at just in sections. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, he rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built uh, the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Well, Nehemiah begins by recounting for us the work of a guy by the name of Eliashib. Now, Eliashib, you notice there, it tells us in the verse that he was the high priest. That's a pretty important position. There was only one of them in the kingdom here. And here is Eliashib, the high priest, who doesn't see himself as too good or too important or too busy or anything like that to strap on a work belt. But he's right out there with his brothers, and it says that they built the sheep gate. Well, as we're going to see in the chapter, there are 12 gates in the city of Jerusalem. And each of those are going to be mentioned. We're going to show you some maps in a, in a few minutes or, or schematics in a few minutes. But there's 12 gates in the city of Jerusalem. Ten of them are going to be mentioned in this chapter. Two more later on in the book, something called the Gate of Ephraim in chapter 8 and the Prison Gate in chapter 12. But the first gate that is mentioned here in Nehemiah is what is called the Sheep Gate. So we have a picture. There's the Sheep Gate. You see the Sheep Gate runs across the northern portion of the wall of the city of Jerusalem. It's in the northeast corner. And this is the gate, and you can see the proximity to the temple. This is the gate that the, the sheep or the lambs, those animals that were going to be brought for sacrifice, they would enter in through this particular gate. This is where the sacrifices would come through. Now, we don't have labeled on our map, but we also read that between the sheep gate and the fish gate were a couple of towers, the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. So the first group of guys, they're going to start at the sheep gate and make their way westward uh, to the fish gate, and they're going to rebuild that section. That'll be their section, led by the high priest Eliashib. Now, the second group of guys begins in verse 3, and they're going to focus their attention from the fish gate to what is called the Gate of Yashan. And so let's read that, starting in verse 3. It says, Now the sons of Hasanah, they built the fish gate. They laid its beams, they set its doors, its bolts, its bars. And next to them, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakuz, he repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshizabel, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So these guys start at the fish gate. I think we have a picture of that. You can see there, that's now in the northwest corner of the northern wall. And this is called the fish gate because it's through this gate that the fish that would be sold in market that are coming from the region of Galilee in the north, that they would be brought in through this gate and set up in the market and they would be sold uh, and so on. So this particular gate is called the fish gate. And you'll notice in this building process, the Lord takes notice of some people, the sons of Hassana, as well as Miramov, Zadok, and the Tekoites. And they all chip in, they all do their part, and they take care of this section of the wall. The Lord takes notice of that. But notice what the Lord also takes notice of in verse 5, and he records it for us, writes it down for us. It says that, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. 
So here's a group of people that were too good, if you will, to get their hands dirty. And they missed an opportunity to participate in the work of the Lord, the opportunity to be used by the Lord. If you want to think of it from this perspective, they missed the opportunity to be recorded in the Scripture, at least in a positive light, for all posterity. Because they were too good and they would not stoop to serving the Lord. Now, I suspect that if they were afforded the opportunity to lead the temple for the week, hey man, we need some people to lead the temple. Would you help us out? They would jump on it. If they were asked, hey, we're doing a crusade, the Jerusalem crusade, and we'd like you to be the keynote speaker, they'd jump on that too. But as far as you know, playing around with some dirty block and mortar, that just wasn't for them. And the Lord takes notice of it. You know, I remember a lesson that Pastor Chuck Smith taught us. Now, Pastor Chuck was a Calvary Chapel pastor back when there was only one Calvary in the world. Now there's like 1,600. But the very first Calvary Chapel. And one of the lessons that he taught us, I, I don't remember if it was a book I read or a, a conference that I attended, but he pointed out that the majority of the pastors on his staff or the men that had been on his staff but that now had gone out and planted a church somewhere, that the majority of those individuals began as janitors for the church. Isn't that interesting? They began as janitors for the church. And these men were delighted for the opportunity to do so because it afforded them the chance to fix a clogged toilet one hour and then to go on a hospital visit and see somebody in the hospital the next hour. And before you knew it, what began happening is these guys were making so many hospital visits or things like that that they had no more time to unclog toilets. And so they were named a pastor. Because we don't have any more time to undo the toilets. You can't be a janitor anymore. And they had, had to hire a new guy to become the janitor and unclog the toilets. And it went on and on and on. That He said the majority of the men that we've hired on our staff started out as janitors. Now, those guys would never go on to become pastors if they couldn't bring themselves to stoop, quote-unquote, to the Lord's service. So whatever that might be, as far as stooping is concerned, these Techoites here, these nobles, they missed the opportunity to be used by the Lord because of their pride. How sad. So the Lord would have us to be servants. Now the next group of people we come to, their job is to take responsibility for the gate of Yashan. And we start reading about this group of men and women in verse 6. So it says this, Joiada, the son of Pesiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, they repaired the gate of Yashan. They laid its beams, they set its doors, its bolts, its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the, the men of Gibeon and, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, they repaired. And next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Melchiah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Haloesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. So these guys are going to take the gate of Yashan. Some of your versions may say the old gate. Maybe you see that there. The word Yashan is a Hebrew word which means old. So that's sort of the disparity. The gate of Yashan or the old gate. It was likely this was the oldest gate in that wall. I'll say this here, if you've been to Jerusalem or you've seen pictures, you know that there's a wall that runs around the city. You can actually walk on the wall and get a great view. If you want to pay 50 extra dollars to your trip when you go there, uh, but nonetheless, you get a great view of the city in that regard. That particular wall today is pretty old. 
It was built in 1200 A.D., so about eight, 900 years ago. But that's not the wall that we're referring to. It was, a, it was a different wall altogether that Nehemiah is talking about. But you can picture it. And for those of you that are familiar with the wall that is there today, you know that there's various points of access into the city. Well, similarly here, the oldest point of access into Nehemiah's wall was something that was called the Old Gate. And so we have a little picture here. You can see the Old Gate is over there on the western side of the city. And here we read that a variety of people are going to pitch in to repair from this gate down to the next gate, which is the valley gate. And it seems that the leaders are two men, Joiada and Meshulam. They seem to be leading the laborers. They're listed for us in verse 6. They're supported by a bunch of guys, Melatiah, Jaden, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah. They're listed in verse 7. Verse 8 begins telling us about Uziel, Hananiah, Raphiah, uh, Mal... That guy, Micaiah, uh, and Hashub. Now, some names, you might look at, oh, that doesn't do anything for me. It might not do anything for you. But let me draw attention, not to their names, but to their occupations. Because I think this is a rather interesting thing here. So notice what we have. Uziel, it tells us he's a goldsmith. That's like a jeweler. Okay? A little bit further down, Hananiah, listed as a perfumer in some versions uh, some of your versions say an apothecary, which gives the idea of a druggist of sorts. Uh, Raphaiah was a ruler. His name is listed there somewhere in this section. Shalem is another ruler, politician, an official. So you have jewelers, you have perfumers, you have officials. This is not exactly the trade union that has sort of gathered to do these jobs. These are not professional builders. Notice also, they're not even all men. Look at verse 12. Down the bottom of verse 12, it says uh, that so-and-so repaired he and his daughters. So these were people that weren't trained to do this work, and this wasn't their occupation, but they did it anyway. And I value that. I appreciate it. Because they could have easily made an excuse. I don't know how to work with block. I work with jewelry, jewelry and I make jewelry. Or I'm just a girl. I don't know how to do it either, you know, or something like that. All kinds of excuses could have, been made, could have been made as to why somebody else should get involved, but not them. But they get involved anyway. It's been said, and I love the phrase, that the greatest ability is availability. That the greatest ability is availability. And you may not have all the gifts and all the talents, the talents but if you have the passion and the drive to see the work of the Lord done, the work of the Lord done, He will use you far more than a person that is gifted but not passionate. And so here are some folks that say, hey, look, I'm not a pro, but I'll do what I can. What do you need? Can you carry some stuff? Sure, I'll carry some stuff from one place to the other. And so we see that with this, that group of people in verses 8 to 12. I also want to draw your attention in verse 11 to a guy by the name of Micaiah. It says there in the middle of the verse, Micaiah, the son of Harim. And the reason why I want to draw your attention to him specifically is because this is the second time he's mentioned in the Scripture. He's actually mentioned back in the book of Ezra. Remember, we studied the book of Ezra about a month or so ago. And in Ezra chapter 10, we read of him. So let me read it to you. It says, Of the sons of Harim, Eleazar, Ahijah, Micaiah, Shemaiah, and his other brothers. So it speaks of Micaiah, the son of Harim. We're talking about the same guy. Now you may recall from our study of the book of Ezra, that Ezra chapter 10, it's not a very exciting chapter. It's another long list of names. And it's kind of a depressing chapter because it's the long list of names of guys that had disobeyed the Lord and married foreign women. You remember that? And Ezra comes on the scene and he's like, what is going on here? 
This is the very same thing we got in trouble for, marrying foreign women and then being led astray and worshiping their foreign gods, and you're doing it again? And so all of these people are called out, and one of those guys that is called out is Melchiah, the son of Hirem. Now here we are in the book of Nehemiah. This is about 10 years later, and Melchiah, the son of Hirem, is being called out again, but this time he's being praised because this time he's accomplishing the work of the Lord. And the point that I want to make is this. Despite the glaring failure on this guy's spiritual resume, God uses him anyway. Isn't that great news? Because every one of us, whether it's our pre-Christ days or it's after we've become a Christian, we all have failures. And some of those can get down on our resume and they can be pretty significant. We all have checkered past, if you will. And we can, the point is, we can be like a Melchiah. That we can repent of our past sins, that we can get right with God, and then we can move on serving the Lord. And Melchiah does that. So the lesson for us is never let our past failures get in the way of serving God in the present. Repent, make things right, and then get on with serving the Lord. And Melchiah does that, and the Lord commends him for it. Verse 13, the next gate they're going to come to is the valley gate. So it says, Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah, they repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it, they set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and they repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Now the valley gate, it's appropriately named because this was the gate that led out into the valley that separated Jerusalem from the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it's a very dry, arid, desert area even to today um, of Israel, so that's the valley gate. You'll notice, and it's something I'm going to draw your attention to in a future study, but I do want you to notice the, the schematic that we have here, is there's a great distance between the old gate and the valley gate, and then between the valley gate and the dung gate. And so just take notice of that, jot it down in the back of your head there, your mind, and we'll come back to that in the future. Verse 14, Melchiah the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Harakim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it, and he set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Now, so verse 14 introduces us to another Melchiah. This one, different from the one that I just pointed out to you, is a ruler. And despite the fact that he's a ruler, notice he takes up the hammer and he begins to repair the dung gate. So here's this big, important ruler of the people, and regardless of that reality, he's out there swinging a hammer. And I appreciate it. And notice where he's swinging the hammer. He's swinging the hammer down near the dung gate. I don't know if dung is a word you use much anymore, but for those of you not familiar with dung, dung is essentially human waste. It, it ultimately involves all of the waste that is produced in the city, and that stuff has to be taken out of the city or the people are going to get sick. And so the stuff is taken out of the city and it's dumped in a pile, then it's lit on fire and it's burned. So here is this guy, southern portion down there of the city, and he's a ruler, and yet he's working this job. My friend Grace said he got a really crappy job. And I said, Grace, that's not appropriate. That's not appropriate at all. But it was Grace's joke, so if it offends you, it was her. I simply wrote this. Most people would say, this job stinks. Thank you. You like the other one better? Okay. And you know, as a ruler, this guy, it's not far-fetched to, to draw the conclusion. He could have gotten somebody else to do this job probably, don't you think? Maybe even if he had to, he could have paid somebody else to do this job for him, but he doesn't do that. And he gets right in there and he does what needs to be done in the service of the Lord. And the Lord commends him for that, and I appreciate it as well. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, 
It says, And Shalem, the son of Colhoseh, ruler of the district of Mizpah, he repaired the fountain gate. So we have a little picture here of the fountain gate. You see, we're beginning to make our way back up toward the north again. It says, He rebuilt it, he covered it, he set its doors, its bolts, its bars. He built the wall of the pool of Shalah of the king's garden. A lot of these things I don't have listed there, but between the fountain gate and the water gate is this pool. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of beth he repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keliah, he repaired. After him, their brothers repaired. Bevai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keliah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, he repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zebai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakuz, he repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priest, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maziah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his house. After him, Binuai, the son of Henadad, repaired another section, from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king of the court. And after him, Padiah, the son of Farush, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate. And on the east in the projecting tower, as far as the wall of Ophel. So now we have another picture here showing you the water gate in proximity to the fountain gate. And then verse 27, after him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. So I'll be honest, long list of names. Not the most exciting section of Scripture. Uh, have very little meaning probably to you and I, but nonetheless, the Lord sees fit to include them in his word. And again, notice he takes notice of their efforts. And the Lord takes notice of your efforts as well, is the reminder. Now the final section of the chapter, starting in verse 28, as they make their way back to the sheep gate, it says, And above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired. Sometimes younger brothers feel that they're useless and worthless. Sixth son, look at that, he's out there working. The Lord takes notice. After him, Melchiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired. As far as the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the muster gate and the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So three final gates are mentioned here. I'll draw your attention to them. The horse gate, you can see the picture there. It's kind of like three o'clock on the clock. The horse gate was right near the king's stables, which were just outside of the city. Uh, and this would be the gate that the men of war would gather as they were about to go off into battle. Um, and so that's called the horse gate. The next gate right near it is what's called the east gate. Now, the east gate was the first gate that was opened up each morning. It, it had the best vantage point of the rising sun. So the people that were on the wall that were sort of looking out for the enemy that might be coming to attack, they would gather to this point at the wall. They would look out. As the sun was coming up there, the first place that could really see it, they could get a lay of the land. There's nobody out there. Everything's okay. So they would open up the east gate. And then gradually, as the sun came up, all the other gates would open up as well. So that's the east gate. And then the next one, the final gate that is listed, 
is called the inspection gate. Some of your versions call it the muster gate, and then others call it the, the, mish, the mifkad gate. Mifkad is a word which means inspection. Um, this is the gate. We talked about the horse gate where the, the uh, soldiers would go to to go out. Well, the inspection gate is where they'd come to to come back in. And the king would go and he would inspect his troops and so on. That's why it's called muster. It's where they would gather again and he would inspect them at that particular place. What's also interesting is that the, this gate, this inspection gate, it's also the gate which became the seat of judgment as well. So I've made mention in smaller cities where there was only one gate in, that would become sort of the seat of the action. And the officials of that city would sit there and people would bring their case to the gate and they'd present it. Well, here in Jerusalem, you have 12 gates. Which one do we go to? Well, you go to this one. And the issues would be brought. The city officials would gather. They'd hear a matter and they'd make an, a judgment here at the inspection gate. So talk about a whirlwind. Here we are. This process we're going to learn is going to take about uh, just under two months uh, of time. But here we are. Nehemiah, three months earlier, was off in another part of the world praying about things. Now he's back here. or Now he's here in Jerusalem. And all of this action is taking place. He had arrived maybe as early as three days earlier, gave this rousing speech, and now, blam, look, all the work that is taking place all around. Because the people heard what he had to say, and they took off in all different directions, and they got to work. And it didn't matter to the people if they were at the good gate, the inspection gate, where all the good officials are, or if they were down at the dung gate with some stinky job that nobody else wanted to do. It didn't matter, because the work of the Lord was being accomplished, and they wanted to be a part of it. That's what mattered to them. And so everyone gets busy doing their particular part. And because of that, what couldn't be accomplished in 150 years, you may recall I pointed out to you, is now accomplished in two months. That's amazing. Amazing things are taking place because nobody really cared who was the one that got credit for it or who got the good jobs or who was qualified and who wasn't qualified or who had a checkered past and who didn't have a checkered past. It was just simply, well, here I am, Lord, use me. And people got to work and they were used. And that's been my prayer. I, I'm sure it's your prayer as well, that that's what the Lord will do with us here at Calvary. And not even just our church, but with the churches of our community and the individual Christians of our community is that all of us will say, here I am, Lord, use me. You want to use me at the local high school as a teacher? I'm ready. Send me in. Let me be a missionary there. You want to send me to some office complex? Send me there. I'll be a missionary there. You want me in this neighborhood, Lord? Okay, Lord, I'll do it in this neighborhood. I'll be your missionary here. That all of us are simply presenting ourselves as servants. Each of us are getting to work on our portion of the wall, and God is accomplishing a great thing. And that's what we see here in the book. This is a beautiful account, chapter 3, of the work of God being accomplished through the people of God. Nobody was too high, nobody was too mighty, except for that group of nobles, and the Lord took notice of that. Nobody was too unskilled for the task. Again, the greatest ability is availability. If you want to be used by the Lord, the Lord will use you. Nobody had a past that was too checkered to be used. The Lord doesn't allow the past failures to hinder present successes. And it's remarkable to see what the Lord can accomplish through a people that are committed to Him and that are united for the task that is in front of them. And so here's these people, keeping their eyes, despite the opposition, firmly fixed on the Lord, presenting themselves as vessels through which the Lord can work through. And my prayer is that we would be a people like that. Amen? Amen. Let that speak to your heart. Father, we thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you for this group of men and women that are listed here. 
Lord, for all posterity. Their names are recorded in the limited pages of Scripture. Lord, you took notice, and none of their work was insignificant. And Lord, we delight in that. And Father, I pray for us as we, uh, we undertake the work that you've called us to do. Sometimes we can be discouraged. Sometimes it can seem like it's beneath us, and I'm not stooping to that level. Other times it could be a glance of a person that disapproves or mockery or, or something like that or veiled threats. But Lord, we just want to keep our eyes on you and we want to accomplish that which you want us to accomplish. We want our hearts to be in tune with your leading so that we're confident to move forward and we don't let anything dissuade us. Lord, we believe that the days are short and there's a great work that still needs to be accomplished. And Lord, we have uh, decided to make ourselves available for your use. So Lord, humbly we present ourselves and we pray that you would accomplish big things through us. In Jesus' name, amen.